agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, political and policy analyst, Kristen Matheny. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm good. Happy Saturday. Yeah, happy happy early Independence Day. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, before we get started with our show, and we have a lot to get into, I want to thank uh, some of our latest, newest uh, supporters on Patreon. It's a pre- pretty big list. Trevor, David, Carla, Ed, Seth, John, and also Emily, who recently made a significant increase to her, to her level of support for the show. And that's really one of the best two-week periods we've had in a while. And it brings us really close to that goal of 5% of listeners being supporters. And we didn't quite make it by the end of June, but we decided to extend the whole, if we get the 5% by the end of this time, July, we'll, if we hit that mark by the end of July, we'll actually still be releasing those multiple bonus shows to thank our supporters with topics to be chosen by everyone who's supporting us on Patreon. We're, get, we're getting really close. I'm, I'm pretty sure we can do it. And I am looking forward to hearing the ideas folks have for those bonus shows. And of course, it, as a Patreon, Patreon supporter, you get that second full-length episode every week. You get ad-free versions of all of our shows, other things at different levels of support. To check it all out, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you'd like that bonus show, but you can't afford to support us financially right now, totally not a problem. Just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. And of course, we are also now on Venmo at politicsguys, and you can also support us if you want through PayPal. Uh, you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. For that. So on today's show, we're going to be talking about the Trump Organization indictments, the Supreme Court decisions on Arizona's voting restrictions and California's donor reporting requirement, the dismissal of antitrust suits against Facebook, and time permitting, we'll also discuss U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria, the House Committee on the January 6th Capitol riot, and Donald Trump's initial ranking on the C-SPAN historian presidential rankings. You can probably guess where he comes down on that. Anyway, uh, and if we don't get to that, the regular show, we'll, we'll talk about it in the bonus show. But before we get to all that, we'll just take a quick break and we'll be right back to start things off. Okay, Kristen. So I, I thought maybe we could start off the, today's show with those indictments against the Trump organization. What do you think? Yeah, sounds good. Right. Um, so yes, I'll, I'll bring everybody up to speed. So uh, this past Thursday, there were some indictments that were handed down um, that involved not Donald Trump necessarily directly, but the Trump Organization. So the office of the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus R. Vance Jr. charged tr- uh, the Trump Organization's chief financial officer, uh, Alan Weisselberg, and also named the organization itself in those indictments. And those 15 charges include um, kind of a kind of a, a mix, um, tax fraud, grand larceny, and falsification of records. So it's kind of a mix of those. We'll get into that. Um, so there's lots in play here. While some, and just to kind of, you know, if, if, if you've been sleeping this week or you've been busy this week, um, you know, you, you may have missed this, but a lot of the left-leaning pundits and, of course, uh, you know, a lot of left-leaning journalists are predicting the downfall of the Trump 
empire. Um, I saw a lot of pushback, though, on the left, um, claiming that this, you know, these indictments come up short, considering that the Manhattan DA uh, Vance and New York Attorney General Letitia James actually subpoenaed millions of documents, several years worth of tax returns. So they're kind of surmising that this isn't a real payday and this wasn't what they wanted or expected. Um, and then, of course, there are editorials and articles. I read one from uh, the Wall Street Journal. I read one at Politico, um, among others, that basically cautioned the left against celebrating this as results could be. And, and the quote that I think was used in Politico was less than consequential. So I thought that was interesting. So kind of all over the map here um, with this one. But I, yeah, I, too, think this is probably a good way to kick things off. Um, but I know you were eager to talk about it because we have a lot of uh, listeners and and you know, people, people who are wondering about this and, and, you know, if this is really going to be a payday or if they're disappointed about this. So what are your thoughts as someone on the left? Well, I, I think that it, it's very easy to jump to conclusions. And I think it's going to, it's going to be a, you know, a fair period of time before we really know how much is there, because as we've talked about, plenty of people know, it's not necessarily that difficult to get indictments. And uh, mm -hmm. though, I mean, it seems, and again, that, that we have only heard one side of this, certainly that, you know, Trump's comment is that this is a political witch hunt by radical left Democrats. And, uh, you know, uh, the Manhattan DA says it's not about politics. I find that sort of sort of hard to, <laughs> to, to believe. Yeah. Right. Um, but but, you know, I think it is interesting to see what's not there. There was nothing there about, you know, about Trump himself, at least not directly. There's nothing about the hush money payments to, you know, the Playboy Playmate and the, the adult film star and all those things that we talked about. Uh, we've talked about before. So mm -hmm. it, it seems to me that, you know, that the, I guess the positive spin on the left, sort of, if you want to call it positive, is that this is sort of a tip of the iceberg thing. They're kind of way to get their foot in the door, maybe see if Weisselberg is going to flip a little bit. He's been with the Trump organization for forever. If anyone knows where the bodies are buried, if there are bodies that are buried, certainly it's him. And so, you know, I, I think this is a big story, certainly, because, you know, the fact that uh, the business organization of the last president has been indicted, well, that that is a, a big deal. Uh, but right now, I really think it's kind of too early to get a sense of how much of a threat this puts the Trump organization and Donald Trump under. And I certainly understand people on the left who say, well, you know, he's run this corrupt organization for forever. And so this is the beginning of the end. I'm I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> so I, I couldn't help but uh, think about, you know, New York uh, Attorney General Letitia James is somebody who has you know, she's popped up in the news quite a bit over the last couple of years. And, you know, when I saw this on the at the top of the list of things we were going to talk about, I said, you know, I wonder, I remember years ago um, when I worked for a news company, I remember publishing articles and, and pushing articles about, you know, her vow to kind of take down Trump and the Trump family. That was her vow. You know, when she when she came into this, she made it very clear she was going to make the Trump and the, you know, the Trump family's life a living hell, I think was the quote that was used in Vanity Fair or something, some magazine, I think it was Vanity Fair. And I went back and I'm like, gosh, was that 2019? It was 2000, it was the end of 2018 that she said that. So for the last, you know, two, two and a half years, there have been like million, something like, uh, I saw the number, it was like up over a million individual documents that were, you know, uh, subpoenaed, um, you know, they, the, the 
the official said that it was that this was this investigation wasn't over. They were going to keep investigating it. I kind of feel like and, and it, this isn't something I'm necessarily accusing the left of doing. I think I think we're just so partisan right now and we're so divided right now that it's almost like a game to some of these upper level officials, state, uh, you know, state attorneys, attorneys general who feel that. Um, you know, they need to just look for anything to try to pin something. And I'm not saying I'm not excusing anything. I mean, this it, this definitely doesn't look good for Weisselberg. This definitely doesn't look good for him. Um, and I'm not excusing any of it. But what I'm saying is that I guess I'm a little sad that kind of like this is what it's come to. And I know that that this is something that has always happened, I, but it just seems to be so much more blatant and out in the open. And, you know, as I went through articles, I like I said, I read the, Washington, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial piece on this. I read, you know, something in The Hill. I read something in Politico. And basically, there's so much conjecture about what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. And you have people on one side salivating over it. I mean, just salivating shamelessly. And then you have some people shamelessly claiming that this is going to be that this is a kangaroo court and this is going to be just another political witch hunt, which is a, a phrase that I've come to loathe yeah. uh, over the yeah. last couple of years. But I just I don't know. I think it says a lot about where we are as a country. And, um, you know, like you said, I, it remains to be seen what's going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, that if that, you know, the claims that the left isn't going to get their quote unquote payday. I wouldn't be surprised if that comes true. Um, you know, I know that there's a, there's a lot of hope on the left that Weisselberg is going to flip. Um, and, you know, he's going to, like you said, he's going to tell, you know, tell the feds where the bodies are buried. But, uh, you know, it remains to be seen. I'm sure it's not the last time we'll talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Def I mean, this will definitely be uh, a while. And, and I think there will be yeah. other charges as well. And this is going to carry on for a while. But, you know, I the salivating thing on the left. I understand that in a way, because if, as, as many people do, and I think understandably so, uh, they believe that Donald Trump is a deeply corrupt individual, then it, it's hard not to want to see somebody who you believe is just a bad actor in so many ways to, to get you know, justice in that sense, to get what he deserves. And and so there's that line, I think, between wanting to see justice served and that kind of schadenfreude, you know, and, and that's that, that's a difficult line because two things at the same time can be true. It can be true that this is both a political prosecution and also that Donald Trump mm -hmm. is deeply corrupt. And so what do you do if he's deeply corrupt, but it'd still be political? Well, you, I mean, it would seem to me to be wrong to not prosecute him simply because he's an ex-president. I mean, he's, mm -hmm. he's certainly the most, uh, the ex-president with the greatest, I guess you call it, business empire of any, mm -hmm. I think, ex-president. We see, I mean, Mitt Romney maybe had clearly had some, he wasn't an ex-president, but, you know, <laughs> uh, maybe unfortunately. But so I guess that Donald Trump in so many ways is just a unique individual, and it just creates a series of really vexing problems. And certainly I want justice to be served. And there's a part of me, and I'm not proud to admit it, that would, you know, would probably smile a bit at the picture of Donald Trump in an orange jumpsuit, you know, and that's, I'm not proud of that, but I'll, I'll admit it because I think that he is just a deeply flawed uh, and just kind of bad individual for various reasons. And, you know, I, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at, where I'm at on that. You know, it, when you're talking, I'm I'm thinking 
you know, one thing that I, I try to do a lot is I try to put myself in, in your shoes, you know, in the yeah. shoes mm-hmm. of somebody who doesn't feel the way I do and doesn't vote the way I do. Um, because I think that's something that, you know, we sorely miss right now with all of this partisanship is, is there was a time when we could come together and we could at least have some empathy or some, a level of sympathy. And I think that the closest thing I can think of um, on the right and and those who are listening who are, you know, fellow conservatives, Republicans uh, might be able to understand this is the way that a lot of us feel about the Clintons or the way a lot of us now are starting to feel about Joe Biden and, you know, the Biden family. And I'm not, I'm not trying to make it's, it's, it, it is in many ways an equivalency that that doesn't exactly work. Um, and I'm not trying to detract. I'm just trying to say that I think that we can at least understand <laughs> where, sure. where people on the left are coming from. And I think there's there's a level of understanding when, you know, I think with the Clintons, I've kind of come to the conclusion over and over and over again. I, I'd love to see Hillary Clinton in an orange jumpsuit, too. <laughs> so I get it. I get it. And I'm not proud of it either. Um, but I think when it comes to the law, um, you know, it's very, very difficult. It's one thing to think something and to know something with every fiber of your being, but to prove it is something very, very different. And it's, you know, why the justice system exists. It's why, you know, lawyers exist and, and this process exists. And, um, you know, I, again, like when it comes to these cases, you know, dealing with Donald Trump or, or even, you know, claims against the Clintons or, or whatever it is, um, I think it's really, really important to investigate. Um, I think it's important to to let this system play out. Um, if, you know, if the goods are found, if, if Weisselberg flips, then, you know, maybe this is a different conversation. Do I see that happening right now? I don't know. I don't think so, but, you know, we'll see, we'll see how, how it plays out. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, to your point, I get it. And I, and I think it's, it's important to, to draw that analogy for the listeners on the right and say, you know, we, this isn't something that, that we should immediately, you know, take offense to. This is something that, that we feel in a very real way as well. So I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, as, as you said, we will almost certainly, not almost certainly, we will certainly be talking more about this story in, in the future as, as things develop, but uh, maybe we could, maybe we should move on to something with much more, I guess, policy relevance, right? That uh, there were actually yeah. a couple of Supreme Court decisions I know that we want to talk about, I guess, starting with, right, the one about uh, Arizona voting laws. Yeah. So um, this Thursday, boy, the Supreme Court was really busy on Thursday, weren't they? Um, (laughs) So this Thursday, the Supreme Court upheld uh, two voting rules out of Arizona, which were uh, which had been, you know, if if, again, like if you've been busy, uh, the Arizona has really sort of been ground zero as the site of this hotly contested recount of the 2020 election results. So in a lot of ways, it's not just a battleground state, but it is a battleground right now. So it's, it's relevant, you know, for in a lot of ways, but it's relevant for that reason too. Um, so the Supreme Court's decision was, and this is an, an important to note, it was split 6-3 um, along those ideological lines. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, and the majority found that the restrictions that had been imposed um, in Arizona uh, do not violate a key provision of the Voting Rights Act, which was Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So let's talk about the original case, which was Brnovich versus uh, the Democratic National Committee. So the DNC challenged restrictions, these restrictions on uh, voting, alleging that they disproportionately burdened minority voters. And the restrictions, which were largely favored by Republicans and people on the right, uh, were aimed at kind of two 
different groups, the two different phenomena, I guess you could say. The first is this out-of-precinct policy, which requires election officials to toss out an entire ballot if it was cast in the wrong precinct. And then the second, uh, I guess the, the second aim was to, you know, targeting ballot harvesting, which is probably a term you've heard. Um, Arizona state lawmakers uh, made it a felony to collect and deliver someone else's ballot, with some exceptions, caregivers, family members, things like that. So, um, you know, I I think this is going to be, you know, something really important to follow. This was something very important. It was something I was watching. I know you were too. And Mike, I, I wanted to bring up too um, that, you know, on our Slack chat, uh, you brought up the media's overly biased coverage of this decision. Um, you know, and I, I just wanted to say I can't, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a really valid point where some serious contemplation, I'm sure we'll get into that. But yeah, so that's kind of the background of this case. I know it was, you know, discussed on the show last week. And, um, you know, it's it's very, very important. But now we have this decision and, you know, a lot of people are happy about it. A lot of people are angry about it. What say you, Mike? <laughs> well, you know, I as you mentioned, the, the media thing, when I read, I, I found that yeah. of all the bad coverage in the media, uh, Supreme Court decisions may be one of the one of the worst things, because oftentimes I feel that they don't go very deeply into the arguments. But thankfully, we can always go to the original documents there. And that's that's what I ended up mm -hmm. doing. And, you know, it seems to me that in, in his opinion for the court, Justice Alito made a number of of points. And one of his large largest points was, well, OK, when Section two of the Voting Rights Act was last amended in 1982, States typically required in-person voting with only narrow exceptions for absentee voting. So therefore, he concludes Congress couldn't possibly have intended to, uh, in his words, to uproot facially neutral time, place and manner regulations that have a long pedigree or in widespread use in the United States. So that's part of it. The other part, I think, is he argued that, well, going to the correct precinct to vote is what he called a, a quintessential example of the typical burdens of voting. And as he put it, mere inconvenience cannot be enough to demonstrate a violation of Section 2. And then finally, he says, well, you know, the size of the disparity here is also should be taken into consideration. And it's a pretty small one. He says, well, around 1% of minority voters were affected by this uh, throwing out the wrong precinct and around 0.5% of non-minority voters. So he says, well, you know, it's, you know, it's a half a percent difference. Is that mm -hmm. big enough? Well, it seems like based on all that, he says, once you weigh that against the state's interest in deterring potential vote fraud, well, no, this doesn't rise to the level of a violation. And that was, I mean, I think a lot of those points were pretty well covered in the mainstream mainstream press uh, coverage of the decision. And I read that and I thought, you know, that doesn't seem unreasonable. But then I actually read uh, Justice Kagan's dissent joined by uh, the other two liberals on the court, Breuer and Sotomayor. And I thought, no, actually, I found myself feeling that the three liberals on the court had a uh, had a stronger argument. And, you know, I should point out, Kristen, right, that this goes back to Shelby County versus 
Holder in, in mm-hmm. 2013, where the majority essentially said that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, that pre-clearance thing, was invalidated unless Congress would come up with a up-to-date formula for deciding, you know, which areas have to have to apply for that pre-clearance. And and Kagan says, you know, well, the, the majority basically wasn't wasn't content with destroying Section 5. Now they're going to go after Section 2, which is a, which allows lawsuits after the uh, after the fact. And the argument of the, of the minority, at least as, as I took it, was that, you know, if you look at the law, the law talks about having to look at the totality of the circumstances. And yeah. her argument was that, well, that means not just the law, but, well, you know, the background circumstances, including including factors that may mean that a seemingly neutral on its face provision actually ends up having a discriminatory impact. And I think it seems to me that even Justice Alito is saying, well, yes, there's a discriminatory impact, uh, you know, half of a percent, but that's not a big enough deal because the law is neutral on its face and the state has this interest in preserving the integrity of elections. And, you know, I find that I find that unconvincing. Because as Justice, Kagan, as Justice Kagan points out, there's nothing in the law that says that it should be interpreted in light of what state voting procedures were in 1982. And there's also nothing in the law about mere inconveniences or the usual burdens of voting. As far as I read the plain text of the law, the only valid consideration is whether or not a law results in disparate impact. Does it make it, you know, does it make it harder for minority citizens to vote? And it seems to me that even the majority is saying, well, yeah, it does, but it's not that big of a deal. And it's not that big of a deal to me is not a very convincing argument. So that's kind of where I come down. <laughs> yeah, I um. So the I actually I, I took a similar path as you. Um, I usually go to SCOTUS blog for for. Yeah pretty good commentary on this stuff. That's usually the the first place I go. I have a husband who's a defense attorney and I know that's where he goes. So that's where I go. I trust his opinions on these matters. And, um, you know, once I read that, if I need to know more, I also go to the opinion and the dissent. And that's what I did here. I didn't read the entire thing. I kind of skimmed through the SCOTUS. The SCOTUS blog um, did a really good job of, of covering this. It also did a really good job of covering the next case we're going to talk about as well. But it kind of broke things down. And I saw things along the same lines. Um, I I saw kind of two different ideologies in play. Again, you know, it 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 was split six three. Um, and you know, it's it's easy to say, well, these are conservative judges. They're serv- they're you know they're siding with Republicans. But as we know, there are some wild cards in there. The conservative judges don't always vote along those ideological lines. So I was interested. I was I was a little surprised that it was a six three uh, vote on this. I I definitely thought it might be closer. Um, I think Kagan makes some powerful arguments. Um, but I I. Think I think what it boils down to is Alito's, he made a statement in, in the opinion that um, this is strong and entirely le- legitimate state interest. It, it's within its legitimate state interest to preserve a fair election. So he talks a lot about the future, about future implications, which is something that the Supreme Court is supposed to do. They're supposed to look at, you know, the, the, the future impacts of the way they rule. I mean, these, these cases come up again and again and again. No doubt we're going to experience this in other states. You know, we are experiencing this in other states where, you know, 
there are calls of, you know, mass amounts of voter fraud in 2020, it's not the last time we'll hear about it. And so whatever they decide here, whatever the opinion is, it will it will stick and it will become, you know, part of the pantheon of cases that we talk about whenever we bring up a big issue like voter fraud. But at the same time, um, you know, I think Kagan makes a really powerful case. I, I couldn't help but think of, um, you know, I have a, a friend whose husband is a, he's a physician and he, uh, he works, he's a, he's a government doctor. He works on a very, very, re- just coincidentally works on a very remote uh, Native American reservation in Arizona. And I started thinking about, you know, some of the, the you know, the original case and, and some of the articles I read in the news about this case, um, how, you know, especially in Arizona, you have these very, very remote places where, you know, people live and they're not able to get to their, you know, precincts because they're too far away. They're such big areas that they're not able to get to their precincts. They have to have their ballots delivered to them, uh, which is technically, uh, you know, ballot harvesting if it's not by somebody who's approved to deliver those ballots to them. And so, you know, I, again, like I tried to put myself in the shoes of somebody like Justice Kagan, who I I don't often agree with. Um, But, you know, I think she makes a very valid argument for the fact that, you know, when it comes to, you know, the Voting Rights Act Section 2, it's it's pretty black and white. Um, You know, the measure isn't necessarily what the motivation was. It was, you know, were people discriminated against for whatever reason? And, you know, I think you could make a really solid case for the fact that they were discriminated against in in this case. Um, But I, I also see, you know, Justice Alito's point that he's making that, you know, this has some, you know, this is very impactful and it has some far reaching effects. This will come up again. We have to think about the future. Um, You know, having, you know, people voting and feeling good about their vote and feeling like elections are fair is extremely important to, you know, the preservation of our republic. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the very foundation of what we believe in as Americans. And so I don't, I mean, I hate to say that I, I see both points here. I mean, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, but I really do. Yeah, no, I, I I totally understand that. Like I said, I, I thought that Alito made some, you know, made some important points about the state's interest and integrity of elections. And now certainly on the left, a lot of folks will say, well, you know, why are these these questions about the integrity of elections? Well, because Donald Trump and others are making, you know, repeatedly make false claims about stolen elections. And you have that that kind of crazy inexperienced cyber ninjas group that's doing their own kind of highly questionable audit, right? And all that sort of thing. But, um, you know, one thing I, I'm glad you mentioned was the mm-hmm. about the, the rural voting, because what a lot of people don't know, and Kagan pointed this out in her dissent, is uh, only around 18 percent of Native American voters in rural counties in Arizona actually get home mail delivery. 18 mm-hmm. percent. And for a lot of them, she says delivering a vote, you know, to a to a, a post office box, a post office requires a trip of somewhere between 45 minutes and two hours. I mean, that's a that's a pretty big deal because around mm-hmm. a little over five percent of Arizona's population is Native America. And as you might expect, in the last election, Native Americans went overwhelmingly for Biden, something like five to one for Biden over Trump. So it's understandable that, you know, I think people on the left would look at this and say, well, this is clearly a way of trying to make it harder for a really huge Democratic constituency to vote. And it does seem to me to be you know, a pretty clear disparate impact here. But but having said that, I mean, I agree with the dissenters here, but 
my question is, well, what's the, what, what sort of standard is there? Because it seems to me that just sort of random variation is going to likely mean that minorities and non-minorities are going to have their votes thrown out at different rates or at different participation rates, you know? So what, what if, in this case, with the precinct, incorrect precinct ballots thrown out, the difference, as Justice Alito cited, was zero, half of a percent, 0.5%. Right. Right. So is that significant? What if it were 0.1%? What if it were 0.01%? I mean, at what point do we say, well, this is just kind of statistical noise? And at what point does it rise to the level of a, a significant a significant difference? And I think that's important because even though Alito says, well, it's not a big deal, well, Okay, 0.5% isn't a big deal. Well, let's let's recall that Arizona is a state that Biden won by 0.4%. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, true it's marginal, but a lot of these elections are decided at the margins. And I don't I don't have an answer to what is so small that it's just statistical noise, but it seems to me that half a percent is big enough that it's that it's not just noise and that there is an impact, which is why in the end, even though I think Alito and the majority make some good points, it's hard uh, it's hard for me to see that those arguments as being as compelling as those of of Kagan, Breyer and Sotomayor. Yeah, I I agree kind of going in the opposite direction. Um, you know, it's it's funny because it's it's hard to remove your biases. It's sure. hard to say that you're not a political person because we are political people and you know, we do talk about policy and we do try to, you know, we do try to have this polite conversation and we try to understand the other side in these, you know, civil debates, just just like our, you know, our message of politics guy says, we try to have these civil debates, but it is very, very hard to remove your bias. And, you know, again, like it's like we said about the, you know, in the last story, it's not something I'm proud of. It's not something, you know, no, nobody's, you know, proud of their biases necessarily. They exist, they do. And it's, it's very, very, difficult for me to say that, um, you know, like, like you said, that this, this small amount of, of, you know, this small discrepancy wouldn't have a gigantic impact. And of course, I, you know, I, I, I voted for Donald Trump. I would have loved to have seen Donald Trump won Arizona. And so, you know, my political leanings tell me one thing. Um, my, you know, if I look at this from a policy perspective, I'm not sure where I fall. If I was, if I was, well, first of all, I'd be a terrible justice because I oftentimes see both sides and I, and I have to really think about it. But the more that I read, you know, Alito's opinion, I, I saw some really good points being made. And rather than just jump to conclusions that, you know, the, the conservative, ideologically conservative justices are right, I wanted to see both sides. I get the points that Kagan's making, and I hope that came across yeah. when I was talking about yeah. her dissent. I get it. Um, and I, you know, I think um, I think they're they're worth paying attention to. And I think that the fact is that, you know, political Kristen, you know, Kristen, who's been a political strategist, of course, I side with Alito. But if I'm looking at this fairly and if I'm trying to be, you know, wonky and, you know, if I was if I was a justice and I was looking at this, I I don't know where I would fall. I think I would I think I would need to, to delve into this more and discuss this more. Um, um, you know, I, I have to say, like, I am happy about the the outcome because I think it's it's going to, you know, maybe affect elections and bring a fairer election. But I think Kagan makes some some darn good points. And and I'm glad, you know, I'm glad we, we kind of agree and kind of disagree on this because, um, you know, maybe maybe I will make up my mind in the coming days. I, I plan to read more about this. Well, well, <laughs> and, let me, you know, let me... I really it's something I really want to think about more. 
Let me ask you this. Let's say that the discrepancy and in, in, uh, uh, incorrect precinct ballots thrown out, instead of being uh, half of a percent, if it were, say, 5 percent, would that would that make a difference to you? you? You see what I'm saying? I see exactly what you're saying. Um, or let's say it were, let's say that we're, let's it say it were 20 percent. Let's <laughs> say that let's say that it were 50 percent. Is there a level at which minority votes would be thrown out that you would say, well, wait a second, this is just clearly on its face discriminatory in effect? I think if I was looking at this, trying to, I guess, decrease the amount of political bias, I I think we could look at this and say when it comes to the Voting Rights Act Section 2, discrimination is discrimination. It doesn't necessarily have to be motivated by discrimination to be discrimination. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I feel kind of like if, yeah, if if, if anybody is discriminated against, it, it it's pretty black and white. And it, and it's pretty, it's pretty obvious that, that it happened and it's wrong. And that, you know, we, so I think when you say, you know, would it make a difference if it was half a percentage point or, or five, per, you know, 5% or, or, or more or less, I think probably discrimination is discrimination. And, you know, I think it's, it's something that needs to be weighed as such. Um, and I, and I think that was a point, although it was kind of, you know, it was kind of lost in all of this argument and this back and forth. I think that was a very valid point that Justice Kagan was making. And so it seems to me if that if that's the analysis, and I agree with that analysis, that given the fact that the Constitution gives Congress the right to make election, you know, federal election regulations pass laws about these sort of things that that therefore, if, you know, conservatives may be unhappy with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, but the the answer isn't to expect a uh, conservative activist court to interpret the law in a way that kind of twists it, but the answer would be to amend the law or rescind the law if they don't like it. I mean, you know, this is something I know that for years, uh, first mm-hmm. Jay and I and you and I have talked about as well, is that, mm-hmm. you know, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be the job of the courts to put their thumb on the scale and interpret the law in such a way that, you know, meets with their ideological predilections. It should be, you know, a Congress gets that the right to you know actually make the laws and whether it's judicial activism on the right or on the left that's problematic and see it, it i guess it, in the end it seems to me that when i look at the plain text of the law it seems to me that that alito and the majority are jumping through a lot more hoops to interpret it in a way that is not consistent with the plain text to get to the outcome they want. And so I, I see them as being more activist than Kagan and the other two dissenters in this. Well, you know, again, I go back to Alito's statement, and, and I think this was brought up, I think this was brought up on the SCOTUS blog, um, but there was this this statement that political motivations don't always equate to racial motivations. Sometimes you know, political motivations are also racial, but it's important to kind of dissect the two and to say, okay, so if we're looking at this as an issue of possible discrimination, no matter what the motivations were, um, you know, whether they were political, whether they were racial, whether it was both, um, you know, I think, again, like, there's this kind of nagging little voice in my head that says, Alito makes a really good point about the fact that, you know, if we don't have confidence and faith that our elections are fair and that, you know, everybody who 
is, you know, eligible to vote gets their vote. And that, you know, if, if we lose confidence in this system, then, you know, this is a legitimate argument and that it holds a lot of weight moving forward. Because again, like I said, this will come up again. There's, it's sort of like that when I start to find myself, you know, when I read Kagan's dissent and I start to find myself saying yes, and, and, and I agree with what you say, I do actually agree with what you say, but there's this part of me that says, but you know, which one is, is more important? Um, Is it, you know, the faith in, in the election process and, in you know, everything that, that we've kind of staked our claim on as Americans, or is it, the issue of discrimination, which comes up in the Voting Rights Act. And, and I and I think you make a good point about possibly rewriting or changing or, or, or altering the law rather than sticking your finger on the scale of justice. Yeah, and that, that's, that's kind of where I come down. I, you make some very yeah. good points, as Leo did, but in the end I say, like, okay, fine, but that's a job for democratically elected legislators. It's not a job for an unelected, right. uh, unaccountable in that sense court to, to, to make those decisions to make policy. So, yeah. You know, uh, I, you know, we, I know we also have another big Supreme Court decision to talk about. But before we do that, let's just take a quick break and then we will just be right back and talk about that one. OK, Kristen. So, yeah, there was that other big Supreme Court uh, decision, as you as you said, mm-hmm. end of term, all kinds of stuff going on this time, not Arizona, but California. California. Yeah. So like I said, Thursday was a busy day for SCOTUS. (laughs) Um, So this past Thursday, uh, the Supreme Court struck down a requirement in California uh, saying that nonprofits and charities in state um, operating in the state of California must provide the state attorney general's office with the names and physical addresses of their largest donors. this is uh, also this was a six three decision that was split um, among along those ideological lines um, and uh, which is interesting to point out and uh, you know the original case to go back to the original case like I did in in the first case we discussed uh, which was Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta uh, there were arguments that were brought from these nonprofit challengers that this requirement violates the First Amendment and um, that it deters contributions and donations particularly those big contributions and donations um, this is this is when I wasn't following this one as you know, as I guess, as in detail as the Arizona case, but this one is of interest to me because I've actually done some work with AFP Foundation before. Um, in the past, in the past, I've done some work with them, uh, voter registration and stuff. So I was interested to see because I know that I I don't know about you. I have some strong feelings about uh, you know donations and and uh, you know contributions and thing, dark money. I know it's it's something we've discussed on the show, but this is an interesting case too, and I I didn't want to forget about it. I was glad it appeared on our list of stuff to talk about this week. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, my first thought is uh, that I should point out that our very own Jay Carson wrote an amicus brief uh, submitted to the court on this. It's very, very cool. And so, uh, you know, Jay, as you might expect, ended up siding with the conservative majority on the court here. And or as he put it, I will quote from Jay's brief here that the law (laughs) undeniably makes donating to these organizations less attractive, chilling the organizations and their donors First Amendment freedom to associate. And furthermore, he echoes the majority in their decisions, arguing that in a string of precedents, the court has held that the exacting scrutiny standard required here means that the state has to convincingly show a substantial relation between the information sought 
and a subject of overriding and compelling state interests. Uh, and as Chief Justice Roberts points out, in uh, something like 60, over 60,000 charities have to renew their registrations each year. They all filed this required IRS form. But he said, uh, quoting from the trial judge's ruling, there was not a single concrete instance in which the pre-investigation collection of a Schedule B, that's the form, did anything to advance the attorney general's investigative, regulatory or enforcement efforts. So basically, the court said this just seems to be some sort of state of California. Well, this might be administratively convenient for us, which isn't enough of an interest in the majority's mm -hmm. opinion to sort of override that possible chilling effect on free association. So that's kind of yeah. my take of the majority's argument. And I should also point out that, you know, organizations from across the ideological spectrum agreed with this. I mean, it wasn't just conservative organizations. It was, mm -hmm. uh, the, for instance, the ACLU, the NAACP. So there was a pretty much charitable organizations don't want to have to, you know, submit this information to California, understandably so, right? But again, I found myself in the end, this was a tougher, this was a tougher call for me, but I found myself agreeing with the dissenters here because just as sort of my art pointed out that, well, first off, where's, where's the actual, uh, burden, the actual, uh, the actual claim of some sort of, uh, uh, some sort of wrong that's being done, some sort of, you know, physical, uh, a physical thing that's happening as a result of this. Where's their standing? Because in the past, the court is traditional. Of course, the court traditionally requires plaintiffs to demonstrate something along those lines, real evidence that they're going to be, they have been or will be subject to things like threats, harms, or reprisals, that sort of thing, as opposed to just alleging that there's a potential for a possible chilling effect. And in fact, there there's case law from the court saying that just arguing that, well, there may be a potential chilling effect, that's not even enough to say that you have standing here. So I think that's a very, you know, that's a very strong case here. That's not to say that I agree with the law. In fact, I think the law is overly burdensome, and I would, I would not vote in favor of that law. I would even vote for repealing that law because the state of California has other means of getting that, getting that information if they need it. And they clearly have not used it uh, when they've gotten it in this sort of very convenient way for them. But that being said, just because I think a law is a bad law doesn't mean it's unconstitutional. So I think this is a bad law that is not unconstitutional. And so I would have agreed with the dissenters on this. But but again, I, I think it's a, a closer case for me. Yeah, so I I was looking at the opinion um, and, and I was looking at the dissent as well. I did the same thing. Went to, I got most of my information from SCOTUS blog. They did a, they did a really good job. If, you get, if, you, if you've never yep. been to SCOTUS blog before and you're looking for like a way to distill, you know, the, the, a, a SCOTUS decision without necessarily reading through all of the documents and the opinions and the dissent, SCOTUS blog does such a nice job of that. But, um, you know, yeah, one of the things that, that uh, caught my attention was that not all of the ideologically conservative justices totally agreed. They they agreed in part uh, with with Robert's opinion. Um, for example, and and I thought they made some really valid points and some points that I did agree with. So Robert's opinion was very what's the word I'm looking for? It was sweeping. Um, it was a very sweeping opinion. Um, it, it you know he he his opinion was 
very cut and dry. Um, and I liked actually that like Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, um, Justice Alito, um, I think Neil Gorsuch actually joined Alito in, in uh, you know, in his statements. But, um, you know, they were sort of arguing that the court shouldn't have found that this requirement was un unconstitutional no matter what, um, that there are kind of like shades of gray here, which, you know, I think there are some people who believe that the Supreme Court shouldn't really pay attention to those shades of gray, that that yeah. things are, are, are very, they come down on one side or the other. There are some purists. And I think there are some people who feel that they should pay attention to those shades of gray. I'm a shades of gray person. I think in a lot of cases, there are a lot of, you know, circumstances and, and one-offs um, that can happen. And, you know, when you have a really sweeping decision uh, that's handed down, like the one, you know, Roberts discusses in his opinion, it, it opens things up for a lot of interpretation and problems later on. I know um, Justice Alito agreed with this to some extent. Gorsuch agreed with Alito. Um, uh, he wrote an opinion and he said, and I have the quote here, he's not prepared at this time to hold that a single standard applies to all disclosure requirements. And he did not agree that the Supreme Court's cases have broadly resolved the question in favor of exacting scrutiny. And I think these are really valid points. And I think they, they're they not exactly the point you were trying to make, but I think they kind of go along yeah. with what you were trying to say. And I, and I agree. I agree with all of these points that these justices are making. Yeah, you know, it drives me crazy. And they to the point you make is that when you read the coverage of these things in, in almost all the in almost all of the right? media, aside from specialized media like like Scotus Blog and things like that, it's it's all you know on the left, it's all uh, Supreme Court conservatives hate 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 democracy or you know have struck a blow against you know, like they're these evil people sort of you know twirling their twirling their mustaches as democracy is being run <laughs> over. It's just and you know. It's it's hard to it's hard for me to take that seriously. That may be the that may be the practical result, but when you read the opinions, I think as you point out, like you, I'm a shades of gray sort of person, and I do think you know, especially the reason why this was difficult for me is because this does seem to me to be a, a bad, overly burdensome law, and so there's that kind of pulling me you know against it, but. As you know, as I point, if I argued for years that just because a law is bad doesn't mean it's unconstitutional, and I don't want the mm -hmm. court necessarily stepping in to say bad law because that's not their job. You know, that's the job of the legislature, and so that makes me judicial activism. Either way, just kind of makes me deeply uncomfortable. And, and it seems to me both sides tend to say, well, we don't care how activist the court has to be, just so long as they reach a decision that I like. And that's just that I just have a huge problem with that. Definitely. I, you know, I think I, I can't remember who made this statement. I saw a quote not too long ago and it was I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it was something like um, it was something it may have been taught. It may have been uh, Thomas Massey who made the quote. I can't remember who made the quote, but it was something along the lines of like, um, if you if you always have the same opinions or if your opinions never change, it it makes you an extremist or an activist. And and so for that, I guess I adopt that that mentality that the shades of gray matter, yeah. you know, and and that a lot of times when we see these like sweeping decisions and and I don't. I, I I agree with Roberts to some extent. I remember I was looking at the at the opinion and I and I started thinking about this and then I was relieved to see that Justices Thomas and Alito kind of stepped in and said, Oh wait, but those shades of gray. And it's funny because Thomas isn't usually one to point things out 
like that. So it kind of caught me off guard that he did. But I think this is a really good example of when those shades of gray come come into play and when we have to pay attention to them. Um, And I think I, I totally agree with your point that you know, just because something, just because you don't like something or you find it repugnant or whatever, uh, doesn't necessarily make it unconstitutional or or improper or or what have or illegal or whatever. And you know, I think that's the point that a lot of attorneys try to make. My husband um, often has to argue cases and 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 deal with you know criminal activity, and he knows that you know he knows the truth, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you know somebody who's guilty doesn't get off on some sort of illegal technicality or something like that. And this is this is the the approach that, you know, justices and certainly federal judges, judges, you know, at any level should be taking when they when they get cases like this. It's not necessarily about deciding the law. It's deciding if 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 this law is legal, (laughs) you know, and so it's I I think it you know, I think this is going to be a more important case. It's funny because I was looking more at the Arizona case, but the more I think about the California case, the more I think, oh, this could really come into play. We've had so many issues with things like, um, you know, donor, uh, you know, donor information being spread, dark money. You know, these are things we've heard about with after McCain-Feingold, you know, we heard about dark money and, you know, super PACs and things like that. So all of this could become very, very important, especially as we start getting into uh, 2022. And I think you may get I think you make a great point about, you know, the sweeping nature of, of Roberts's decision and other conservative justices even having some problems with that. I, and I think maybe the decision itself would have been different had this not been sort of outside of the electoral context. And I think that's worth pointing out because this doesn't relate specifically to elections. This is just about right. registering for charities in general. Donors. And yeah, and so therefore, there's maybe less of a, you can argue there's less of an overriding compelling state interest. And so, uh, you know, had this been about specifically election disclosure, I think the court might have reached a a different decision, but kind of like you and like some of the other conservative justices and certainly like the liberal justices, I was... I do not think that the sort of sweeping decision that that we saw from mm-hmm. was was entirely was entirely appropriate. I don't think it was appropriate at all. Obviously, I would have voted the other way on that. But but yeah. All right. So, you know, before we move on to something that's not Supreme Court related, we're just going to take <laughs> one more quick break. We'll be right back to talk about antitrust suits against Facebook. All right, Kristen. So you are our go-to person for Facebook. We always try to talk about talk about the social media giant uh, when we're doing shows together. Given your vast experience, for better or for worse, right? <laughs> so, their Facebook was again in the news this week. It was, and it'll always be on the news in the news, Mike. Um, yeah. So yeah, so this this is a big case uh, that's been kind of ongoing. It'll come it'll come back. Don't worry, we'll be talking about this again. <laughs> so at some point it'll it'll go to it'll go to court. It'll it'll become something in the news uh, more frequently. But on this past Monday, so earlier this week, um, U.S. District Judge James Bosberg in Washington D.C. Um, granted Facebook's request to toss out uh, dismiss lawsuits filed by the Federal Trade Commission and uh, Attorneys General. Um, so these dismissals were really pretty speedy and they were coming well before pretrial proceedings. And I have to be honest with you, I wasn't surprised that, that this outcome came. Um, the simple statement is, uh, is that it was a technicality. The lawsuit was legally insufficient, was uh, what the judge said. And it 
as it did not contain a strong enough argument to support these monopolization claims against Facebook. And, and we'll get into that, too. So um, the judge kind of left the door open and said in 30 days, an amended lawsuit could be filed. And you better believe they're working on that probably pretty diligently right now. Um, the judge also said that the 46 states that filed suit, and this was back in December, I think we talked about it back in December, actually, took too long to bring the case. Um, and so, again, like I said, the ruling isn't a huge surprise, but as with anything social media oriented, um, it brings up a lot of bigger issues. And some of those bigger issues are, you know, the influence and power of social media, but but really big tech and massive corporate entities like Facebook. And then I think the legal issue here is the difficulty of successfully bringing and uh, winning these like huge kind of colossus antitrust cases, um, which I know we've discussed a little bit uh, in the past. But yeah, this is something I obviously was paying attention to because I deal with social media literally every single day. It's what I get paid to do. Um, and it's what I've been, you know, what I've done. I, I've you know, worked on political campaigns, I've worked in social media. So I know the, you know, I know the impacts and I know it's only getting greater. But as somebody who doesn't work on social media every single day, Mike, I'm curious to know your thoughts about this. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, it's a lot of egg on the face of the FTC, because uh, yeah. you would think, given how prominent this is, that uh, the fact that it's thrown out for being legally insufficient, that's uh, right. I feel like someone should lose their job over that, you know, but that's that's pretty <laughs> that's pretty bad. Um, if you can't even make that, you would think that one of the first things you would make sure that was in your filing was some pretty strong evidence as opposed to, well, they're a monopoly, just take our word for it. I mean, it, there should be more than that, right? Um, because basically they just alleged that Facebook had market share of over 60% and that no one else 60%. is close, you know? Yeah. And he said, he said that the, the allegations don't even provide an estimate, estimated actual figure or range for Facebook's market share at any point over the past 10 years. Like, wow, that, I, I, I'm not an attorney. I've never been to law school, but that would probably be the first thing I would do, you know, in my filing. So that seems pretty bad to me. And it's hard for me to believe that they would be that incompetent. So maybe that goes more to the case of, well, how do you determine, how do you how do you get good numbers on that? And I'm sure they're working on that right now, as you pointed out, because, you know, what is the market? Facebook basically seems to be arguing that, well, we're competing against everything, every form of communication that there possibly is, carrier pigeon, you know, telegraph, you name it, you know. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not exaggerating that much, which the judge basically didn't buy that. But, but, but clearly, you know, defining what, social media service is that's that's not necessarily a clear sort of thing and uh, i think it's likely that the ftc can make a case that facebook exercises monopoly power but but again it, you know it's tricky and i think maybe this maybe goes more toward a problem with antitrust law and, and because of course antitrust law was written long before at least the basic antitrust law was written long before our world today in which companies aren't even these companies aren't even charging directly for their product and so uh, i i expect i mean both sides seems like democrats and republicans want to make some changes here i don't know in our political environment we're going to see that sort of thing but uh, it seems to me it, it's high time that we update antitrust law to kind of deal with the sort of modern economy. And, and it seems to me also that this is something that I would hope that Democrats and Republicans at least enough can agree on that 
good competition, good robust competition is something that we, we, we should all agree is a positive thing. But I, I don't know. I'm not necessarily all that optimistic about that happening. So going back to your point about just the, the level of incompetence of, of this and how surprising it was they couldn't muster enough evidence to even be able to present the case in trial, um, 46 attorneys general, it's, you know, it's it's not like we're dealing with a couple of attorneys general and they're trying yeah. to like whittle together a case. 46 attorneys general, like presumably the, the, at the highest levels, you know, the, some of the best legal minds in 46 states. And these are, you know, people who are Democrats. These are people who are Republicans. These are people who are, you know, coming together on this. You think, and this is, this again was my frustration. You'd think that they would be able to come up with something good. Again, reiterating your point that, you know, there would be, an, there would be more evidence than, yeah, we think, you know, they have more than 60% of market share, but it, I mean, it's really astounding, but I, you know, it's what was really interesting was I think I can't remember if it was Tuesday or Wednesday, but I woke up to, I subscribe to all of these kind of like big techie type magazines and, you know, I get emails with featured articles and I read an article, I think it was Tuesday, I think it was the day after this, uh, this all happened, um, that Facebook, it was almost just like the most incredible timing. Facebook hit a value of $1 trillion and it's, you know, potentially one of the first companies, if not the first company to to achieve that. Now, this is an estimated value, um, you know, but, you know, the fact that you make a really good point about the about, you know, people coming together on both sides and seeing that we have a problem here. But maybe this is a case for rewriting those really, you know, old antitrust uh, laws and, and you know, considering the ramifications, we're dealing with an entity, like I, like I said, a colossus, uh, you know, the likes of which we really have, we haven't seen a Google, we haven't seen a Facebook. I mean, you you could argue that there, that there are, you know, there were certainly monopolies and huge companies a hundred years ago, but, you know, there's virtually no limit to the amount of value and, the, you know, the, the amount of resources that these companies have. And they're only growing. They're only getting bigger. I mean, as Facebook, you know, they've acquired, you know, bigger companies like like Instagram and WhatsApp. But they're also kind of snapping up these smaller companies to eliminate the, the competition. Um, you know, thousands of these smaller companies have been have been snapped up by these like big tech juggernauts. There is no limit to to the amount of growth. I mean, we have no idea what these companies are going to look like. In, in three years, by at the end of the year, you know, we, five years, 10 years down the road. And so I, again, like, that's why I brought that up. I agree with you. I think maybe this is a good time to look at things like healthy competition and how the market, a modern market, how the market has changed and, you know, possibly accounting for that with rewriting these antitrust laws. I'm not saying that, you know, that, that it is a monopoly or it isn't a monopoly, but I, th I think it's worth looking at because we, again, like we have no idea how big Facebook is going to become, or, or I always lump Facebook and Google together because they're similar in a lot of ways, but we just, they this is something so new, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, I, I feel like we, we gain steam. We start talking about, it. I remember talking about this with you in December, you know, and, and saying like, you know, oh, this is, this is going to be a big deal. And then it, it kind of gets washed away by other news and it seems to come up again and again. So if we're serious about it, let's talk about it. And this is a good opportunity for both sides to come together and do this in a legislative way.
Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And I think, you know, when, when you come into court with sort of a, a legal framework that is outdated, maybe unclear about yeah. how it applies, and then you, you think about what the legal budget of the FTC is and what their attorneys are getting paid as opposed to Facebook's legal team, well, it, it, it's kind of a mismatch, basically, because certainly yeah, the, the federal government is larger than Facebook, but the federal government is doing a lot of different things, and it's not like all of their resources are involved in this. And so basically the FTC is very much legally outgunned here by Facebook. And if they're legally outgunned and the law is kind of unclear or out of date, well, then that, that, that makes the burden so much greater, especially in a case where, like I said, both I mean, people on both the left and the right feel like this is a real problem. But I, I don't know about you. I want to get your opinion on this. Even though I think that in a in a previous era, maybe this would have resulted in some sort of marginally bipartisan legislation, I just see it as being unlikely that either side is going to want to compromise enough to actually give the other side a legislative victory. What, what do you think? Yeah, unfortunately, I agree. Um, you know, it, it's funny because the 46 attorneys general that you pointed out and I pointed out um, earlier, you know, they, they were obviously it was ideologically bipartisan. And yeah. so for for just a moment in December, there was a moment where I thought, wow, this is a, something really big. No one pays attention to this, but I'm so glad people are paying attention to it. This is something really big that we can come together on. And look, you've got these attorneys general, you know, you had, um, you know, people in, in Congress on both sides of the aisle were, were, you know, speaking out about this. You had Mike Lee on the right and you had people on the left who, and it seemed like for a moment we might come to, to a consensus, but at the rate things are going now, unfortunately, I disagree because, uh, or I, I agree, I mean, with you, um, and I, and I, and I don't, th I disagree with my, with my previous view that, um, you know, I don't think that it's, it's going to hinder things. I do think it's going to hinder things. And, um, I think, I mean, I, I have some predictions about what will happen, but I think that the only thing I can say will definitely happen is that this will keep coming up and this will keep getting kicked down the road. I mean, in 30 days, I have no doubt that the FTC and the attorneys general are going to come with an amended lawsuit, um, you know, and, and I have no idea what's going to happen at that point. They're working on it. But, you know, it's again, like this would be a great opportunity for them to come to for the, you know, both sides of the aisle to come together. And I just don't see that happening, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I hope should, it does. I, I should point out on, on the attorneys general side, I think maybe they might have known. It wouldn't surprise me if they knew that their case was going to be thrown out because of the time limitation, yeah. that there was a, a high likelihood. And, and so while they're not eligible to, to refile because of the that, and, but and so I could sort of see attorneys general saying, you know what, this is a popular issue with the public. We'll sign on to this, even if there's a little likelihood of success. We're sure. on the right side of this sort of for political reasons. But the FTC's uh, case, I think that insufficiency, that's a lot more of a, of a real problem and harder to sort of dismiss or sure. understand, I guess, in that sense. So, yeah. But like you said, we will definitely be coming back. This, this is probably going to take years, uh, certainly, to, to get to any sort of a, probably some sort of a settlement. I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, it's going to be quite a long period of time. We'll be talking about it again. But I, I, before we uh, end today, I know you have, some, you have some recommendations or a recommendation that you want to share. And I'm eager to hear. You always have such interesting recommendations. 
Yeah. So I have, I have one and actually I have you in mind with, with this recommendation, oh, cool. Mike, cause yeah, cause I know you're, you're of the vegan persuasion. Um, and so, and I know probably some of our listeners are too vegetarians, vegans, maybe they have dietary restrictions or, or whatever. So this is really interesting. So I, I am not a vegan, um, but I, I have unfortunately high cholesterol. So a couple of years ago I was on the keto diet and I was forced to kind of rethink things and, and go more plant-based, although I do, I do eat animal products. Um, so my sister on the other hand is vegan and I have a lot of friends who are vegan and vegetarian. And this, this, I guess the other side of this is I love giving food as a gift because, um, I feel like it's personal. I love baking. It's kind of a hobby of mine. And sometimes I I can't, you know, my sister lives in Texas. I can't always send her my home baked cookies or, or whatever. I try to make things vegan, vegetarian, but I can't always do it. They don't always stay fresh. So I'm always looking for companies that, you know, especially small businesses that, that make really good products, um, that are like, you know, diet friendly. Um, and so, like I said, my sister's a vegan and I discovered this company and um, it's called Root 9 Baking Company, R-O-O-T, and then the number nine baking company. They make uh, vegan cookies that are like to die for. Oh, cool. <laughs> and they, yeah, and, and it, it was so funny because they're, they're, you know, they're obviously it's not cheap to send cookies, but they're a lot less expensive than some of their, you know, non-vegan counterparts. And, and again, like I'm not somebody who is a vegan. It's, you know, when I, when I, Sometimes when I try something that is vegan, I can it does taste different and I don't like it as much. I've tried these cookies before and I cannot tell the difference. They are absolutely cool. Amazing. Yeah. And it's and it's a small business. They have a really good story. Um, you know, they were uh, founded by a lady, I think, in New Jersey, a, a self-taught baker um, who you know created these these vegan cookies. And I just anyway, I wanted to recommend it. And I had you in mind when I tried one. I was like, I got to tell Mike about this. Excellent. Oh, <laughs> thank, thank you so much. I really do. Yeah. I definitely want to check them out because it as as you it sounds like, you know, that oftentimes finding uh, uh tasty high quality vegan options it's better than it's ever ever has been but mm -hmm. it's still you know it's still kind of a it still can be kind of a challenge so that's it's always great to hear about someone who's uh doing vegan stuff and doing a really good job of it excellent yeah yeah it's, it's really good i highly recommend again it's root nine r-o-o-t N number nine baking company and you can find them easily online but man and their stuff ships really fast within cool. a week you get your cookies they're so and, good and, oh. and, and they, i should point out they are not a sponsor of the podcast but we should maybe no, tell, get in touch with them this is not a paid advertisement or anything like that but yeah well, maybe we should um i have a recommendation uh, a political recommendation i as you know i am a i, I am a person of the left yeah but I have never in my life read anything by sort of a, a, a saint, the almost the figure of the progressive left, Noam Chomsky. Um, never have, but I have a friend who's very far left and we talk and he's a big fan of Chomsky. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to read it. He has a book that just came out and you should really read it. And I, I decided I'd, I'd pick it up and read it. It's a book called Consequences of Capitalism with Noam Chomsky and a guy named Marv Waterstone. And it's all it is, well, all it is, what it is, is a series of literally of, of very, very lightly edited lectures that they gave for a course that they co-taught at the University, I think it was University of Arizona in like 2019. So very, you know, very current, very relevant, relevant to even have an afterword about uh, COVID-19. So very, very current stuff. And I got to say, I started out reading it and I was, I was really 
really into it because they started out talking about what they call uh, uh, sort of common sense arguments. What does common sense mean? And, and if you can control what people think common sense is or conventional wisdom, you can really control a big part of the debate. Like, for instance, if it's common sense that there simply is no viable option or alternative to, to capitalism, you kind of constrain a big part of the debate. Or if you, if your common sense sort of view, your, your conventional wisdom is that anything the United States does, they do for good, positive, spreading democracy reasons, whereas anything China or Russia, do, they do for bad, evil, destroying democracy reasons. Well, that's going to affect you know, how you see the world. And I thought, you know, that, that, that's really, that's true. That's very important. And I think that provides a very useful lens to, to question our views and to look at the world. And so I read that and I was like, okay, cool. This sounds great. But then they proceeded in the rest of the book to totally forget about that and just basically say, well, here's how the world looks through our lens of the United States being evil and imperialist and so forth. And I was so very disappointed with it after that. But the first couple chapters was really they were really good. Then after that, it just kind of <laughs> fell apart for me. So I guess, you know, but but I think that's a very valuable insight. So while I cannot recommend the book per se. I can say that if you happen to be in a bookstore and they, they are selling the book or a, a library, it's worth reading the first chapter or two, I think, for that insight. The rest of it, uh, I think it's kind of preaching to the sort of America is evil, far left choir. And if you're into that, well, maybe you'll enjoy it. But if not, then there you go. But I, I, I thought I'd mention that sort of very disappointing, ultimately, experience I had with, with Noam Chomsky. I don't imagine you're a big Noam Chomsky fan in, in any case. I'm not. A, I no. can't say that I'm a big Noam Chomsky fan, and I can't say I've ever read anything he's written. But, uh, you know, I'll take your word for it. It wouldn't be the place to start. So, But, but anyway. Um, <laughs> all right. So, that, you know, that, that does it for this episode. But as soon as we are done, Kristen and I will be recording the bonus midweek episode. We're going to be talking about the U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria and whether or not the Biden administration has a different and maybe lower standard for intervention than uh, the Trump administration even did. Uh, the House committee that Nancy Pelosi formed on the January 6th riots, including appointing Liz Cheney to that commission uh, and also the newest c-span historian presidential rankings where donald trump makes his initial debut pretty much not quite at the bottom but pretty close to the bottom we'll talk a little bit about that as well it should be kind of interesting if you are a patreon supporter that will be in your feed wednesday morning and if you're not just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and you can become a supporter. That would be great. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, as always, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up for that. And also, we would really appreciate if you could subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Leave ratings and reviews. That doesn't cost anything. It really does help us. And especially if you could spread the word, sharing your favorite episodes on social media, however else you share things, that would be greatly appreciated. If you want to reach us for whatever reason, our email is mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find links to that in our show notes. A special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We hope you'll join us.